realfaith.org.au we had to move from one neighbor to another neighbor and that neighbor had me and my grandmother and few other people in his house for a week but by that time my house was already demolished we had no home and uh, then it was announced in the country that the killing had stopped but it wasn't true it was a lie this is a warning for parents that due to the adult themes being discussed in today's program it is not recommended for young listeners. Welcome to Real Faith. Conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through. Helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life and real faith. At 14 years old, Frida Umuhosa went through one of the most horrific experiences you can imagine. All of her family were killed in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi people in Rwanda, and Frida herself was left for dead in a ditch. She has written about her experiences in her book called Chosen to Die, Destined to Live, about her miraculous escape from the genocide. Today is part one of Frida giving her first-hand account of what happened. Frida, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to have you with us. And before we get started in your personal story, let's kind of get a context. What was happening in Rwanda that led to this genocide? Uh, so uh, when I was growing up as a, a little girl, age of six, and um, I already studied school, and my parents lived close to the Hutus and the Tutsis, which are the two tribes in Rwanda. And of course, there was a, a third tribe called Dabatwa, which just was just one percent and um, not mentioned that much. But the Hutus um, was the majority, um, 84 uh, percent. The Tutsis were the minority, which is my tribe. And um, like I said, growing up, we grew up in I grew up in a village um, called Nyanza and um I just, I had friends of all kinds. Um, my parents had neighbors of all kinds. Um, my parents were Christians and, you know, I was never told to hate anybody. But of course, um, when I studied school, that's when I discovered I was a wrong tribe. Um, Did you know before that? No, I never knew. That you were a Tutsi? I didn't know. My parents didn't tell me. Um, I had never heard of my friends talking about tribes until I studied school. In fact, when the, um, so what used to happen in school is that, um, principals will come into the classes to count how many Hutus and how many Tutsis are in the class. Why would they do that? Um, I would say it was part of the propaganda and was part of the hate, um, brainwashing. Uh, mm-hmm. You're a child, so you're going to be told what's right or what's wrong. So for a six-year-old, if you start teaching them racism, it's mm-hmm. going to stick. Um, and so um, when the principal would come into the class, the first week of my schooling, mm-hmm. he came in and he asked how many Hutus are in the class. And, of course, little Hutu children stood up in the class. Of course, they were the majority in my class. Mm-hmm. And he then asked for the Tutsis to stand up and I had no idea what I was. And so a friend of mine, my best friend, whose family was very close to my family, mm-hmm. 
said to me, get up, you're a Tutsi, because she was sitting next to me. Oh, and you didn't know. I didn't know. So I, I got up. And the reason to why my friend, even though she was six as well, the reason to why she knew was because in 1959, uh, there had been killings of the Tutsis. Uh, and so her grandfather was killed during that time. So oh, her wow. parents had told her about the stories of how the Hutus killed the Tutsis in 1959, 1961. And so because she'd lost her grandpa, so she knew the story, but I had no clue. Mm -hmm. So I stood up and of course the Hutu children made fun of us and they were booing us and uh, calling us snakes and cockroaches. I'd never heard of that kind of thing. So I was pretty confused because yeah. some of my friends stood up with the Hutus and some standing up to be a Tutsi and it happens it's a wrong tribe and now I'm called a snake and a cockroach, mm. which I didn't understand much of it. And the principal was encouraging this? Yeah, the principal didn't do anything because he was Hutu himself mm. and they knew why they were doing that. So every time... Um, they would come in and they would count and um, it was pretty for their own benefits of knowing how many Tutsis now coming into the schools and how many children. Anyways, I went back home that day and I had questions for my mom. My dad, uh, who was a businessman, walked away from home. So he only came home on the weekend. Mm -hmm. So my mom raised me and my uh, four siblings um pretty much on her own when my dad would come home uh, on the weekend. So mm -hmm. I went back home and I asked my mom, why did he choose to be Tutsis? It's such a wrong tribe to be. And my mom had no answers to give me. And she said, we never chose it. We were born that way. Mm. But I hated it. I didn't like being called a snake or a cockroach every time. Mm. And I definitely did not like the feeling of being singled out and yeah. um, being hated and being seen as less than a human being by all these little um, Hutu children. Yeah, so um, from that time then, we knew we were living in a country where we were not loved, we were hated. Mm. So, like I said, 1959 had been the first killings of the Tutsis, and so that led a lot of Tutsis to live in exile in mm -hmm. the yeah. neighboring countries like Uganda, uh, Burundi, and the Congo. So, 1990, these Tutsis that were in exile um, gathered together, wanting to come back home. Mm -hmm. But the Hutu government, which was, you know, in the leadership all those years, we're not allowing them to come. So they formed what they called um, the FPR, which is like the Patriotic Army, to uh, liberate the country from this all this oppression. But you can imagine from when I was growing up up to until I became a teenager, it went from mm. bad to worse every year. Um, and so 1990, when the uh, RPF, which is the Rwanda Patriotic Front, which is the Tutsi and a lot of Hutus who are not in agreement with what was happening in the country. When they started fighting, then it meant that the killing in the country started in 1990. So there was a civil war? It was in a civil war. Now, again, it's a, it's a genocide being, uh, I'll call it cooking, mm. so to speak. Propagandas and hate speeches. And mm. at that point, now there's a radio, uh, a radio station called El Telem. And the radio station is a Hutu radio station put their purposely to put songs of hate and encourage the Hutus to get ready to kill. Mm. 
And that radio will play their songs of um, Tutis being snakes and being the only enemies. Get ready. Um, The help is coming. Uh, We have. So they're just fomenting hate over and over. Yes. And so 1990, my dad was actually uh, thrown into jail, um, Mm. accused of him and so many Tutsis. He was thrown into jail, being accused of supporting this army that is trying to fight and to come in the country. So they're feeling threatened by this army that's out of the country. Yes. The Hutus. The Hutus, yes. So in some parts of Rwanda, like Kibuye and other parts of Rwanda, there's already a lot of killing going Mm. on, but not Mm. where I lived during that time. Um, And you're just a child. I'm just a child. Going through all this. Yes. While while all this is going on. Yeah. And it's getting worse and worse. Getting worse and worse. In 1993, I then went into a boarding school. So went to a boarding school um, because that was very common um, Mm -hmm. when I went to the boarding school. And the first time uh, was okay. The second time when I came back home. I, before then, my youngest sister was actually killed and mm. she was killed as a result of being in a hospital and was killed by a Hutu doctor. No reporting, nothing. Wow. And um, a lot of Tutsis have been killed during that time and we already know you could, on that radio that I mentioned, you could hear your name. You could be listening to that radio and hear your name on the list of the people that are supposed to die in that town. Wow. That's how bad it was. And my dad's name was on it. And so um, during the second term, which was the Easter term, which so we went back home for Easter break. Mm-hmm. And during that time, that's when the Hutu president was leading the country at that time, was assassinated. And his assassination on that same night, it was then put again on that radio and now this time on also on a national radio that the killing had to start now officially. So they the were blaming the Tutsis for the killing of the Hutu the, president. The Hutu president. Even though that has never been proven. Never. And even then, they had already this radio, like I said, the radio had been on for a long time. We already knew, even as children, mm. we knew that we were mm. on the list. We were told by our friends at wow. school, 1992, 1993, you were told by your friends, you are on the list. One day we're going to come for you. Wow. And so that was just like an excuse, so to speak. Yeah, so that was a pretense to start yeah. the killing. Yes, and on that night, it was then officially spoken over the radio that all Hutus have to go killing. Our guest today is Frida Umuhosa, who's giving a first-hand account of what happened during the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi people in Rwanda. We'll hear more of her story and find out how she survived when we return. Looking for resources to grow your faith? Check out Vision Christian Store with books, movies, audio CDs, DVD resources and more. Plus, free delivery on orders over $50. See visionstore.org.au You're listening to Real Faith. Conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au That's realfaith.org.au Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. And you can listen to past programs about the impact faith has had on others. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au 
Welcome back. I'm Eric Scadabo, and today we're hearing a first-hand account of what happened during the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi people in Rwanda. And so, parents, once again, I just want to remind you that today's conversation is not appropriate for young listeners. Our guest is Frida Umahosa, who's the author of the book Chosen to Die, Destined to Live, about her miraculous escape from the genocide. Before the break, Frida shared how the death of the Hutu president of Rwanda was used as a pretense for the killing of the Tutsis to begin. Now Frida shares what happened next. Now we had to leave home. We left our home and started hiding in the in the forest, in the woods, and we couldn't stay home because homes were being burned, mm-hmm. people were being killed. You could hear screamings wow. of people being raped and killed everywhere. Mm. So we left our home uh, for weeks. We had to sleep in in the forest, but not too far away from from my house, at least during that time. Mm. But like the third week of uh, uh, of April. That's when uh, we knew that we couldn't even stay close to our house. And um, when we left, you didn't know that you will ever see your family again. Mm. That evening I left, um, my mom went with the boys. I had three brothers Mm. and a sister. So I had four siblings left at that time and myself. And then my mom asked me and my sister and my cousin who was at my house to go to the neighbor's house, a neighbor who was a Hutu and friend. Mm-hmm. And then my dad went his own, on his own. So you left and you separated as a family, mm. never knowing whether you will ever see them again. Wow. And the reason to why they separated was my mom had a plan. She said, if we all go together, then we die together and nobody survives. But mm. if we split, we have more chances of surviving. Mm. So my mom sent me to that neighbor and I spent a night at that neighbor's house. The following day was just really, it was getting really worse in my area, in my village. Mm. And um, we were then able to survive during at least that following day. And um, then I was, we had to be moving, we had to move from one neighbor to another neighbor. And that neighbor had me and my grandmother and few other people in his house for a week. Now it was now in May. So mm-hmm. he had us for a week until it was May. But by that time, my house was already demolished. We had no home. Mm. And uh, then it was announced in the country that the killing had stopped. But it wasn't true. It was a lie. Mm. So that people now who survived the whole month of April could come, oh, out, come out of, of hiding. Yeah, of, mm. out of their hidings and they will have them easily. Mm. So this man who was hiding us told us about the story of the uh, killing stopped and we left. And went to my grandpa's house. My grandpa was a very godly man, and he mm. was uh, very respected in the community. He he used to be a teacher, mm. and but also sort of like a a, a community counselor, so speak. He used to um, do all the marriage counseling, even though he had no <laughs> qualifications and everything. But he was a, a very good man and mm. respected in the area. So they did not want to kill him. But the death they had chosen for him is to just leave him in his house and die over time with no food, Mm. no water, nothing, and then kill everybody in the area. And he would definitely end his life, uh, Mm. you know, at one point. So when we go home, because we had no home, we decided to go to my grandpa's house. And my grandpa was still alive. He was sitting there reading his Bible, hadn't had any food for for days. Mm. But I was just very happy to see my grandpa again. Mm. Yeah. And um, on that same day, my mom also came home with my brothers. And she also had two other boys of her best friend. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And then during that week is when um, then they decided to come and kill us. And the announcement was made in the area and they um, had a meeting. Um, they had a meeting on a Friday to talk about our killing over the Saturday, which was supposed to be on the 7th of May. Now, the 7th of May was also the day of the burial of the president who had been assassinated a month earlier. Mm-hmm. And so they said that the Tutsis, all the Tutsis that had survived up until then, were supposed to be killed on the same day that they buried their president. So remember, they lied to all of us, and a lot of people have returned to mm-hmm. their broken homes. Thinking and, that it's safe now, you yeah. can come out. And so on the Friday that they had the meeting, one of my brother's friend came to our house and told us that he'd just been on the meeting, and the meeting was supposed to be talking about how they're going to kill us in the morning. Now, my my father also had returned home, but he wasn't um, staying inside the house with us. He was hiding on the roof because, mm. again, my father, being the one man that they were looking for seriously, mm-hmm. accusing him being a businessman, he's been giving, so they were accusing him to be giving a lot of money, uh, funding the RPF. Mm. And so he said, he, there's no way I can stay in the open, they're still going to kill me anyways. So that night, we stayed in the house, and as a 14-year-old, in your head, you're thinking, <laughs> they definitely... You know, have mercy on us or let mm. us go. But then you know that the killing has been going on for a month. So it, it's, it's a lot of confusion and a lot of fear, a lot of terror. Oh, I can't even imagine. Uh, trauma in you. Mm. Um, but we prayed. Mm-hmm. We prayed all night. My grandfather led us into prayer and gathered all of us. We were 18 people in that home. My mom and my cousins and my aunties, he gathered all of us and he said to us tomorrow, it's going to be our last day. The only thing we can do is to repent and die. No one is allowed to run because we've been running for a whole month because wherever you're going to go, you're still going to be killed. Mm. So the only thing we can do is to stick together and die together. And we stayed in the house. It was raining. We had not had any food for days. And um, early morning, about 3 a.m., we heard screaming cries of the children screaming at the neighbors and they were killing these little children and uh, the children were crying saying oh please forgive me i will never be a tutsi again but we knew the next mm-hmm. time was ours and we're sitting on the floor in one room and um, all of a sudden we see this young man coming in the room and we're sitting on the floor praying and he comes in a guy that we knew very you weren't killed by a stranger you were killed by a neighbor Somebody that you know very well, who's a Hutu, mm-hmm. people that you've grown together, people that you've played with, people that you've, you know, people mm-hmm. that were friends. Yeah. And so that made it even more painful yeah. because there are people that you've loved, you've served, you've lived with. And so when this guy came in the room, he was also the guy that was also, my dad had started um, and sponsored a soccer team in my area. Mm-hmm. And so this guy was on the team. So we knew him very well. And when he saw us and we were just very scared and covered our faces. And I mm-hmm. think he just had a little bit of compassion left in him. He had machete and uh, blood on his clothes because he'd mm-hmm. been killing. He got out and um, told the group 
um, oh, these people are not here. They've left. Maybe they heard us kill the neighbors and they left. But the one guy that was leading the group would not believe it. So he came in the room. And when he saw all of us, he's just like, you mean you didn't see all these snakes and cockroaches? And the young man said, well, it was dark. Remember, it's Mm, very early. It was dark. I didn't really see them. I didn't see anybody. He said, well, if you try to help them, that's wrong. And so for you to be forgiven of your sin, of wanting to save them, you're going to have to kill 10 of them. Oh, wow. And so he got us all of us out. He told us to come out. We came out hiding behind grandpa because my father is on the roof. Mm. They don't know he's there. So the only man that is in the house is my grandfather who's old. Mm. And we're hiding behind him. And uh, my grandfather tried to talk to the whole group and telling them, you know, I've loved you. I've served you in this community. Why are you doing this to us? He knows all of them. He knows all Mm. of them. We know all of them. Mm. These are people that either worked for my family or either were friends, Mm. people that we went to church together. And um, the one guy, the leader, said, don't waste my time because we don't have enough time. Now, the RPF, which is the army that was rebellating the country, wasn't too far away from my town. But so was, you would have been liberated. We could have. We could have, but it took them a long time. Mm. you know. So um, then we were led to a ditch right behind my grandpa's house, right where my father was hiding, and he could see everything, but they didn't know he was there still. Mm. And um, going to that ditch, my grandpa, again, a godly man, he led us into a song. And the song said, we are deadly bodies, but our spirits never die. And he told us to sing the song as we're marching towards that ditch. Mm. To this day, I remember the very words of my grandfather, and I remember his face turning. And he turned because, I mean, <laughs> you're singing, but you're not really singing. The words are not mm. really coming. He turned and say, I said, sing loud, he said that, mm. and die with dignity, he told us. So we marched down to that ditch, and when we got there, there was even more people, more killers waiting for us. You were told to lay on on your stomach in the ditch and uh, to make their job easy. There's no time for them to bury. So we all laid in that ditch. Now we were 16 people left and we we went down in that ditch. And um, my grandfather tries to talk to them again, asking for forgiveness, but they won't let us go. Before he even finished his sentence, the one guy jumps in the ditch and hit him, hits him with a, a club on the back of his his head mm-hmm. and you you had a choice they had given us a choice to either choose from um a club a spear a machete or a, a club with nails mm. but there was no gun for you to be shot you had to pay because remember you're a snake you're less than a human being so you mm. cost nothing and a bullet costs money so if you wanted a better death you had to pay for it and we had nothing and mm. they didn't have guns anyways unbelievable and so i had chosen a young man with a club and so, so when, you literally had to yeah. choose how you wanted to die yeah because i knew with a club you're laying on your stomach with a club they will hit you at the back of your head i thought mm. It was better than a machete, being mm. cut with a machete. And this guy was called John. So he said, oh, fine, I would do it. So when my when I saw my grandpa being hit, then I had a hoodie and I covered my head with a hoodie. And this, because my brothers were getting up screaming and crying. And so when um, this guy hit me at the back of my head mm. and I lost my consciousness, I don't know how long I was unconscious for, 
But when I woke up, I was bleeding from my nose and my tongue was between my teeth and, mm. you know, and then I woke up. So everybody's dead except people who are breathing their last breath. Like my sister was actually still breathing as well when they were, mm. when they buried it. But in my head, I'm like, uh, if I show them that I'm still breathing, they're going to pull me aside and kill me so bad as I'm thinking my dad may come down after they leave and take me out or I may be able to shake. So a lot of 14 year old and um, I kept quiet, played dead and they buried and left. So after they left, all my plans of thinking I could shake my, I couldn't even move because I'm laying in between 15 dead bodies. My sister who was next to me takes her last breath and my auntie does the same. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to be in here for how, you know, how long. And this is the worst death I've chosen for myself. But I decide to pray. Mm. Praying the best prayer I've ever known. But crying at the same time and wondering how it will actually ever happen. How if even if somebody will ever even hear me. But God made it possible and brought a lady, that lady that was picking bananas in that area who was a neighbor to my grandpa and heard me scream and praying. But she ran thinking, you know, it's a ghost. So she ran of fear and she went and told someone. And the person she was talking to is a guy who actually worked for my grandfather. And he said, sometimes they bury people alive. It must be someone who's still alive. But she says, but it's somebody. That voice has been screaming since morning at three. It can't possibly be someone who's still alive until then because now it's in the afternoon. Oh, wow. And so he says, I'll still go check. Mm -hmm. So he comes and finds me alive and takes me out of the ditch. Well, that was heartbreaking to hear what Frida has gone through, literally having to pray like her life depended on it, because it did. Fortunately, her cries for help were heard, and someone was able to pull her out of that ditch. We'll hear what happened next in her life next time, as once again, Frida Umuhosa will share more of her story. So that's coming up next time, part two of our conversation with Frida Umuhosa, right here on Real Faith. You've been listening to Real Faith. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send us a message through our website, realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.